0: morning. I can very clearly remember the very first time I got a bad mark in school. I was in grade three. How many of you, is anyone in grade three here right now? No? Well, if you haven't gotten there yet, it's a really fun grade. If you've already passed it, you already know. Grade three is really fun, but it was the first time I ever got a bad mark in school. And I, you know, i grade one and two, you know, or I got good marks. And uh, grade three came, and there's this project that the teacher would give out every single year. It was kind of famous. It was like the big project of that year, and it was called the Tree Project. And what the Tree Project was was for three or four weeks, it was a long time. Every single day, you were supposed to go out and pick a tree. It could be a tree in your backyard. It could be a tree at the park. It could be a tree, you know, at the school or whatever. And you were supposed to go to this same tree every single day and spend 15 or 20 minutes just spending time with the tree and being the tree's friend. And what you would do with the tree is you would you would look at it and you would observe it and see if anything changed from the day before. So what kind of bark did it have? Was it smooth or rough bark? Did it have big leaves or little leaves? Did the leaves change color in the fall? Was it tall or was it short? Was it super wide or was it really thin and slender? What kind of tree was it? What, You know, all these different things Did, were there squirrels living in the tree anything you could think of you're supposed to write about it and draw it in this journal that the teacher would give you and and so i spent man i'd spent hours pouring my heart and soul into this tree project I, I i picked this tree in my backyard and i would go out there and i drew pictures of it and i wrote about it in my journal every single day and i i worked like way harder than i should have to be honest for this this project and so at the end of the month I was confident. I handed in my assignment to the teacher, and it was all good. And a few days later, the next week, I got it back. And to my surprise, it was not a good mark at all. It was, I don't remember exactly the mark it was, but it was like like two or three letter grades below what I was used to seeing. And so that was I, was, I mean, I was kind of embarrassed. I was kind of shocked. I was surprised. I didn't know why. And so I opened it up, and I started flipping through, it, and I realized that everywhere I'd drawn a picture She'd taken marks off for it. And the reason was, in the instructions and in class before, she she told us, you need to draw the pictures in color. I want to see the colors of the leaves. I want to see the colors of the tree. And I'd done everything in pencil. And so every single time I drew a picture, I got marks taken off because I didn't do it right. And, you know, I I put a lot of work into this tree project. And at the end of the day, it was, you know, it was a lot of work that it was a lot of time I'd spent Um, not doing what I was supposed to be doing. I'd wasted so much time because I wasn't paying attention, and and, and so the reason I'm telling you this is because I believe that just like how my understanding of that tree project was inadequate, it was different, I hadn't paid attention. I think a lot of us in this room here and watching online have an inadequate view of God. You know, we, we spend so much time doing things that are for nothing. We, we spend time, you know, chasing promotion and financial security or, uh, you know, seeking affirmation from people that we don't need it from. We spend time thinking about how we can be, you know, more popular at school or what our spouse should change about themselves to make us more happy. How much easier life would be if we, you know, just got paid ten grand more a year. And I believe that, you know a lot of us in this room have, have a view of God that is too small, probably too nice, probably too much like our best friend who gives us whatever we want, instead of a holy, righteous, majestic king who Job says overturns mountains with a word and shakes the earth out of its place. And your view of God matters. It matters because it will change the way you live. It will change how you sing and how you pray to him. It will change your marriage. It will change your trust issues. It will change how you, you know, stress about money. It will change you. It will change everything about you. It will change how you see yourself and how you see the world, how you respond to temptation, and how much joy you have, uh, quite frankly, in in these, you know, terrible days of COVID and self-isolation. And so if you want more joy, if you want a sense of purpose, if you want to uh, live a life worth living, then your view of God and his glory matters. And so the big idea for today is uh, when we have an exalted view of God, our world is transformed. The passage we're looking at today, it's Isaiah 6. The first few verses in Isaiah 6 And this is Isaiah speaking first person of a vision he had of the Lord, uh, which functioned as his call into being a prophet to the people of Israel for decades. And so in this passage, uh, we see three characteristics of God, three characteristics of God's glory that uh, change the way we live and transform our world. And so would you read with me, starting in verse 1, chapter 6. In the year... And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. Those are the seraphim. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. That he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And so here's the first characteristic of God's glory that we see in this passage. Number one, God's glory is earth filling. If our view of God is going to change us, then we need to get a picture of what it is, you know? I could talk for, up here for 10 days about God's glory, but if, if no one really understands what God's glory is, if we don't know what God's glory is, then those are 10 days wasted. And so we see here in the first three verses that God's glory fills the earth. Look, at, look down at verse one again. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and a train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe fills the temple he's in. Your translation might say the hem of the robe. Uh, either way, it's the very edge of his robe. This isn't the full thing. This is the edge. This is the you know the length of it. And it fills the temple. And so this immediately begs the question: how big is God? How massive is this throne? How immense is this temple that he's in? It fills. The very edge of his robe is filling the entire throne room. God must be really, really, really big. He's so big that the train of the robe he wears takes up all the space in this temple. As he sits high and lifted up on the throne. It's like that uh, scene in, uh, I can't remember the movie now, where Ebenezer Scrooge drops down into the jolly giant's throne room and he like almost drowns in the robe because it's so big that's kind of the picture that you know comes to mind his robe is so huge so massive it fills the throne room but isaiah's vision continues to expand our view of god's glory even more if you read on in verse two it says above him stood the seraphim each had six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said, "Holy, holy, holy, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And so the seraphim here—that that word seraphim literally means burning ones. They're fiery angelic beings who are always described as endlessly singing about the Lord's holiness and his glory. And and picture just to try to picture this for a second. Close your eyes, if it helps. These seraphim surround the Lord. They each have six wings and two wings cover their faces because they're unworthy and unable to gaze upon the full majesty of the Lord. With two more wings, they cover their feet and with two they fly. God's holiness is so mind-boggling, mind-bogglingly infinite that even their, even though their eyes are covered from seeing him directly, there's still nothing else they can do but sing holy, holy, holy. Revelation, the passage that Kate read this morning, that says they sing this endlessly, forever. God's, glo- God's glory, his holiness is so infinite that you can sing about it forever, for the rest of eternity, and still not comprehend it fully. You can still not cover every aspect of its majesty. And those seraphim are still there right now singing holy, holy, holy. And this song that they're singing is not only never-ending, but it gives us insight into what God's glory actually is. It helps us to kind of define it a little bit. A couple weeks ago, I did a few polls on Instagram and Facebook um, asking people to define the word glory. And I I was curious. I I got, honestly, more answers than I was expecting for a question like that. And... uh, I think a lot of the answers described worship more than than glory. I think Uh, that's okay, because when you think about it, glory as a concept is kind of hard to define. Um, It's kind of like beauty, you know. Uh, We all see, we all know beauty when we see it. We know a beautiful sunrise when we see it. We know a beautiful song when we hear it. But to define the word beauty is a little bit harder. We might even all have you know, different definitions of what we think is beautiful or not. But we know what it is when we experience it. And and in a similar way, you know what glory is. You've experienced it, even if you didn't necessarily think of the word glory at that time. You know, uh, Sidney Crosby, uh, his golden goal in the 2010 Olympics to win Canada the gold medal in hockey. The impossible shot that Kawhi Leonard made a couple years ago to win the Raptors, win the Raptors, the NBA championship, looking up at the stars and just realizing how absolutely huge the universe is. Glory. None of those examples, though, capture the fullness of God's glory, not even close. The singing seraphim in verse three, however, do. Holy, holy Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So glory is the glory of God. Is his holiness gone public? The seraphim sing holy, holy, holy three times, kind of expressing the superlative. You know, God, you are most holy. But then immediately afterwards they sing the earth is full of your holiness? No. No, they sing the earth is full of your glory. And that's because God's holiness on display for all to see is his glory. Holiness, biblically speaking, means to be set apart. It means to be completely and totally different from everyone and everything around you. And God is holy because there is no one and there is nothing like him. Holiness, you could say, is God's defining characteristic. Every other attribute he has flows from his holiness. You know, He is a God of love, yeah but it's holy love. He's a God of wrath and judgment, but they are holy wrath and judgment. He is our Father, but he is our holy Father. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. And so when his holiness is on display, when we see who he is and what he does, that is glory. God's earth-filling glory is his holiness gone public. Think for a second how God's glory, I think it fills the earth. The earth is absolutely overflowing. It's teeming with his glory. In fact, you know, the universe itself is a result of God's glory overflowing through his voice in the act of creation. He created the whole world, the entire universe, not because he wasn't already complete, not because he was bored, not because he needed us to tell him he's awesome. His glory, through the sound of his voice, reverberated into this empty void, creating the very molecules it would take to carry the sound waves that would create everything around you. Exploding into color and light and life. The earth is full of his glory. You know there are billions of galaxies that he created that we will never see, that no one will ever see there are depths of our oceans on our own planet that will only ever be known by undiscovered creatures. And listen to this. The the tallest man-made structure on the planet is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It's 828 meters tall. That's really tall. That's almost a kilometer in the air. But that is nothing compared to the Denmark Strait Cataract. And the Denmark Strait Cataract is the tallest waterfall in the world. It measures 3,505 meters tall. And it's underwater. I wish I had a picture. I should have put a picture in these slides. It's really cool looking. And even if you don't include that, you're like, oh, that's underwater. That doesn't count. There are still three more above water waterfalls that dwarf the Burj Khalifa. God's glory and his act of creation dwarfs the best that we can do. It fills the earth. Everywhere you look is a window into the creativity of God. His glory is magnificent. It's so massive, so mind-boggling that no one will ever be able to comprehend it fully. No one will ever be able to define it. The words I'm saying right now don't even come close. And the earth is full of this indefinable glory. Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above declares, proclaims His handiwork. Get outside this week and go for a walk down a nature trail. Walk slowly. Just take it in. Take in the glory that overflowed from the mouth of God and created instantaneously everything that you will ever experience. God's glory is not only earth-filling, but the second characteristic of God's glory we see is that it is soul-healing and sin-destroying. having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah, when he's faced with this awe-inspiring, earth-filling holiness and glory of God, he trembles, he cries, woe is me, which is kind of an old-timey phrase, but it's an important one. R.C. Sproul writes about how when Isaiah cries out, woe is me here, he he's literally calling down a curse of God upon himself, upon his sinfulness. And it's really something for a prophet of the Lord to curse anyone. And it's even more incredible, uh, you know, that he calls curses down upon himself. I, Isaiah is in that moment. He he feels like that 10-year-old white towel that's been, you know, spent its whole life folded up to the other 10-year-old white towel. Suddenly, being held up next to a brand new, pure white one. He realizes that even though he's been living surrounded by all these other sinful people, he thought he was doing all right, but he realizes that standing in the presence of an absolutely holy God, just being pummeled by the splendor of his holiness, he realizes, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and everyone I know is too. God's glory instantly humbles it, instantly holds up the mirror for us to see, you know, how sinful we really are. And there may be some people right now uh, listening to this who disagree. I think I'm being too harsh that you know you're not really I'm not really that bad. You know, I, I mess up every once in a while, but I'm not I'm not call curses down upon myself bad. And to you I'll just say this. You have not truly experienced the perfect infinite soul crushing weight of God's glory. Really nobody fully has. In Isaiah or in, in Exodus 33 Moses asks the Lord to see his glory and he says no because you'll die if you see it fully. No one's fully experienced his glory, but if you're tempted to think either consciously or subconsciously that you're doing all right, then then your God is far too small. Your view of, of God is incomplete. It's lacking in some way. You're living a lie, and that's bad news because the holiness of God cannot be in the presence of sin. It's like two positive sides of a magnet trying to touch each other they can't they they avoid each other at all costs it's impossible for them to touch and in the same way god can god's holiness is uh opposite of sin it cannot be in the presence of sin and so that's the bad news bad news is that god's glory shows us that we are sinful that we are unworthy in and of ourselves to ever be with him But that same glory is also soul healing. And let me tell you this, he is a willing and eager healer. Look back at verse 6. Almost immediately after Isaiah's excruciating realization that he's a man of unclean lips, one of the seraphim approaches him with a burning coal and touches it to his mouth and says, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for the burning coal taken directly from an altar sacrificed to the Lord because of the sinfulness of humanity burns away Isaiah's sin. It allows him to even be able to stand being in the presence of the holiness of God. And when Isaiah comes into contact with that charred, glowing coal, his sins are washed away. And here's why that is one of the most glorious, beautiful verses in all of Scripture. Scripture. Because 700 years after this, a man named Jesus would come to earth and it would allow himself to be murdered at the hands of an angry mob. He would lay himself on the altar in the presence of that same holy God whose robe filled the temple. He would be murdered and he would die. So that you and I would also be, be able to have our souls washed and our sin burned away, just like Isaiah did. So that you and I, when we see God face to face, We would not be driven to say, woe is me, but rather, holy, 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 are you my God and my king? That burning coal that purified and burned away Isaiah's sin would become the Savior King Jesus who would die in your place. And when we believe that he did that, when we believe that Jesus died, when we turn from our sin and we choose to follow him, we accept the gift that it is to someday see God face to face not covering our eyes from his glory to behold his power, his glory, his holiness and to worship him forever. We can only do that if we believe we're sinful in the first place. And so I say to you today, whenever you're tempted to think that you're getting the hand of getting the hang of morality, whenever, you know, you begin to compare yourself to the people next to you, Turn your eyes towards the holiness and glory of God in his son, Jesus Christ. Comprehend your sin. Understand his perfection and humbly submit to him once again. God's glory is soul healing. Finally, the third characteristic of God's glory that we see in this passage is that it is mission inspiring. Look at verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. The Lord asks out loud, who, who should I send? Well, send to what? Send to who? To do what? Isaiah, before he's given any specifics or details about what God's sending him to he responds by raising his hand here i am he says send me that is the only right response you can have to the glory of god obedience honor submission the glory of god should inspire you to live on mission here's here's what that means in the next five verses God gets more specific with Isaiah. He says that the people of Israel are worshiping other gods. They're living in sin. They need to be called back to truth. They need to be called back to their covenant relationship, called back to holiness. And so Isaiah is sent to the people to tell them and remind them of the glory that he's just seen and the God they should be serving. To tell them of the earth-filling sin-destroying, soul-healing, mission-inspiring glory of the Lord. And guess what? Today, we are supposed to do the exact same thing. Except now, we get to go a step further and, and do something that Isaiah did not get to do. We get to tell them about Jesus. And our mission, like it says right behind me, if you can see it, we exist to glorify God by showing and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. It's to meet the needs of those around us. It's to speak up against injustice and tyranny. That's showing the love of Jesus Christ. Then we share the truth. We share the story of Christ willingly dying on a cross so that their sin could be tur- burned away and their souls made new again. This is our mission. And, and notice that it says we exist to glorify God. That's, that's why you were made. You are here right now. You're here on this planet to glorify God and I will promise you that showing and sharing the love of Jesus Christ is a lot more exciting when you do it in light of experiencing and tasting and seeing and meditating upon the glory of God it changes you know showing and sharing it changes our mission from just a spiritual duty to an act of worship who shall he send who will go for him Send me, should be your response. Send me. I will go and I will gladly tell my neighbor about the glory of God. I will plaster it all over my social media. I will meditate upon it day and night. You know why? Because what else? What else will satisfy? What else fills the universe? What else crushes sin and transforms souls? What else? I made a big claim at the beginning of this sermon by saying that having a proper view of God's glory will change everything about you. So let's get, this, let's get specific. You can let your glory, or you can let your joy, you can let your contentment, you can let your sense of self-worth be contingent upon really anything you want. It can be contingent upon your relationships. You can base it on how much money you have in the bank. You can base it on how much people value you, how many compliments you get every day. You can do it. I have done all of those things before. But if you do that, you are choosing a life of disappointment. And the reason you're choosing You're choosing to never be able to move beyond where you are today. You're choosing a life of instability and unknowns. People are ever-changing. Money is ever going away. The world is is broken and inconsistent and sinful, just like you. So your joy or your contentment or your sense of self-worth will be founded in something that is broken and sinful and inconsistent however if you choose to let the never-ending well of god's glory fuel you you will never be running on fumes it will never fail it will never falter it never sputters out the glory of god is constant and unchanging so i encourage you to begin every single day spending time in his Word, scouring the pages for his glory Ask him to reveal his glory to you. Then simply ask him to allow you to have the peace of mind and the focus to let his glory affect how you live that day. That is the most satisfying, hopeful, fulfilling life that you could ever live. And you know why? Because it's why you exist. You were made to live like that. So think about this. If God's glory is that important, if it's so important that it fills the earth. That it crushes sin and heals souls. So important that it inspires us to mission. Inspires us defiant sinners to gladly live and serve him. If it's that important, then what does it mean if we choose to ignore it? If, if we were meant to live lives fueled and inspired by the glory of God, and we choose to ignore it, You, we choose to not ever live up to our full potential. It would be like a, a Ferrari sitting in a garage its entire life and never seeing the light of day, or a plane laying idle in a hangar, never flying. It would be like a guitar that's never strummed, or shoes that are never worn. All of those things are still what they are, but did they really fulfill what they were supposed to do? They're collector's items at best. So don't let your life waste away by being fueled by anything less than the glory of God. If you do, you're throwing away the very small number of years you have to live. So the glory of God fills the whole earth, it oozes out of every creature and plant and rock and star and melody and landscape and smile. The glory of God destroys sin and it heals souls, especially the glory of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, who gave up his life for you. And the glory of God inspires us to live on mission for him, to show and share with everyone we meet the incredible glory and grace that has been shown to us. It fuels us and it changes who we are. It is the most satisfying, comforting terrifying thing in the universe it's the holiness of god on display and so let's pray to that end god our prayer is that we would see you for who you are this morning would you protect us from the sin of apathy from the sin of not caring from the, from the sin of thinking less of you than you deserve. You are majestic. You are holy. You are far infinitely greater than we could ever imagine you to be. And Lord, we cannot wait for the day where we get to see your glory face to face in paradise. So, Lord, we confess to you that even this week, we've let ourselves be distracted by the false glory of other things. We've taken you for granted. Lord, would you show us your glory? Would you help us to understand your majesty, your splendor, your holiness? your wrath. Lord, would you crush the sin in our lives and would you help us to live on mission for you, fueled by your never-ending, unchanging, incomprehensible glory. In the glorious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.